0: My name is Craig Pickett. I'm an executive recruiter. More than a decade ago, I started my practice for one purpose, to use my experience as a former military aviator, business jet sales executive, and P&L leader to help aviation and aerospace companies and their executives be fast, adaptable, and strategic. I do these podcasts to inspire and inform. But more importantly, they are a focused platform to help business leaders grow. Welcome to the Aerospace Executive Podcast. Hey, welcome uh, back to the Aerospace Executive Podcast. I am, uh, I'm thrilled to have uh, Human Yazari with me today. Um, Human has an incredible background. Um, he's he's a, a, an attorney by education, um, came up through the ranks of uh, corporate, corporate America, served a couple of years with Gate Gourmet, and then uh, went on to uh, ILFC, as, a, uh, as an attorney helping with uh, structure, I take it, all, the, uh, the, the, you know, all the, the lease transactions and many that ILFC was doing. And it seemed like during the time, it was during the great financial crisis or right afterwards. So I'm sure yes. you had your hands full there, Hooman.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: You helped CHC Helicopter through uh, its filing a couple of years ago when uh, cash ran out. And then uh, most recently, Waypoint Leasing, which uh, you restructured and ultimately sold to Macquarie Bank. So uh, that's a heck of a a background.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you for that kind introduction. I've been really lucky. I've been able to be of service. I've been able to be of impact. I've been able to do super interesting things with really wonderful, wonderful people around me from whom I've learned a ton. So it's been really fun.
0: So you're gonna love the story. So one of the best hires I ever made was a guy who was a burned out assistant district attorney in Baltimore. Right. And he was, he was prosecuting crack addicts and making like, I don't know, you know like, like 80 grand a year, right. working 16 hours a day, prosecuting you know, crack addicts in downtown Baltimore. And one day we got introduced and he said, hey, look, I think we got a job. Right, and uh, we gave him a sales job, and he right. was absolutely incredible. And now he's got his own. He's actually he's he's got his own law firm now, and he does great. His name's Chris Nosier. He's phenomenal. What it coming up through the you know, the legal ranks teaches you a lot of different skills. How do you? Yeah, how'd you find that your attorney, your your, your training as a as an attorney,
1: has helped you, know, you in the business world? It's interesting. I, I, I always wanted to be a, a, a much broader business leader. My father was a CEO of an um, uh, international company when I was a kid. And, and uh, when sitting around dinner and listening to what he did for a living, I thought, well, what an interesting role. How, how interesting for him to have so many um, aspects from um, you know, sales to operations to customers to things that affect people's lives and, and have real meaning. Um, how 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 wonderful for him to be able to do all that, so I thought i'd do law as a training and then see how how that takes me forward i didn't realize that actually especially twenty years ago when I went to law school in the u k um, lawyers are actually you know kind of put in the back room and you're given a five hundred page contract to mark up and find the missing comma on page three hundred and no one really cares what you think about the overall strategy and and, right. and, and, and everything so it was it was in one sense, it was a super rigorous training that helps you sift through issues, um, uh, synthesize them into, into bite-sized um, either messages or questions, and then help find answers. And the rigor of a lawyer, a decent lawyer, will always find an answer. There's always a way. Yep. Um, the lawyers that people don't like are the ones who say, well, you can't do that. Um, so I always tried to be the lawyer who said, well, you can do that. Is that really what you want to do? And if you do want to do it, here's... Here's the answer, and here's the benefits, and here's the downsides, and and let's figure out a commercial answer. Um, so, so, so with that training, I I very quickly realized that in restructurings and turnarounds, especially in private equity backed businesses, um, much more of a meritocracy. Didn't matter what your job title was, and in a restructuring where you can't perform your obligations under your contracts, and you 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 need to kind of figure out where the what the art of the possible is to rethink your business from scratch, the lawyer gets to be front and center. And, and so I was attracted to the restructuring and turnaround world, got to work with the folks at TPG, got to work with a wonderful manager team at ILFC, working with with CD and R and, and again a wonderful team at, at CHC, learned a lot and and used my legal skill set to, to basically help drive a commercial issue forward, which was how do you take a business apart? figure out the bits that are worth keeping, figure out the bits that the market still has a demand for, put it back together in a more efficient and more impactful way.
0: Yeah, I think, it, the, I think you said it early on. It's like, hey, look, we're, we're gonna do a deal here. Yeah. And the question yeah. is, Yeah, yeah how, how are we gonna get to where we wanna be, yes. not if we're gonna get to where we wanna be. And, and
1: yeah. I love that, yeah. yeah, that's the broad thinking. So- and, and, and look, my way of doing a deal has always been to figure out the win-win figure right. out how you can make sure that you get to somewhere where everybody feels happy. Um, because you get people there faster and you get people there with more convic- conviction and more belief. But also being a lawyer, you kind of realize, well, if they're not gonna take the carrot, how do you make a stick? And it's <laughs> that's always, that's always a good strategy to have in your back pocket too. There you go. It makes so, the carrot more delicious looking when the stick is big. <laughs>
0: yeah, I got you. So, hey, look, we're gonna, we're gonna, roll, into, we're gonna roll into a different subject here, but you know, obviously there's a lot of fear out there right now. Um, you know, you know, Boeing, you know, the supply chain was already weakened with the max 8,500 airliners now parked. Um, has got to have every leasing company nervous that every contract is going to get renegotiated. I know there's a, you know, big log jam eventually to clear out, but there's going to be some, um, uh, there's going to be nervousness in the meantime, both on the airline side of the house and on the, uh, the creditor side of the house. What, uh, how, how, are you seeing all, how, how are you seeing all this play out?
1: You know, there's obviously the short term, the medium term, and the long term, right? And in, in the short term, you have had this incredible exhaustion of shock. And I don't think we've had anything like this before. 9-11 wasn't like this. The global financial crisis wasn't like this. SARS, the Iraq war, oil price shock, nothing. It's, it's holistic in, in how uh, it's affected the whole world. And, and it's, it's shock and awe in how, how effective it's been in, in shutting our industry down. Uh, short term, I think everyone is trying to figure out how to maintain liquidity, because in any business, that's key. That's cash is king, is, is, the, is, is what everyone truly uh, rightly says. Um, and in the medium term, I think one has to figure out, well, what's, what's the answer? And, and you've, got, you've got the natural um, tendency for everyone to look at governments for... Uh, help and assistance. And I, and I don't really see any other way of doing it. Um, you've got an industry which, through no fault of their own, has had to shut down. Governments have shut down travel. So mm-hmm. it does make sense for the, for the government to step in and help. The right way and the wrong way becomes a matter of personal, political, and practical relief. Right. Um, what should airlines give up in return? And, you know, should we resent them? Um, We have a capitalist society and and a capitalist way of running our businesses. And airlines have done profit maximization, including share buybacks, including making seats smaller, including charging passengers for drinks and suitcases. Yeah, bags and all the other stuff. All that stuff is now coming home to roost. People are like, well, why do we help these people? If you think about the, the, the vital part that the airline industry plays in humanity in our society, bringing us together. And Zoom is fantastic. We're Zooming now, and, and, and it's wonderful. But there's no substitute for face-to-face contact, right? There's no substitute right. for that human connection that you get when you travel and you sit with someone. And I think as, as a global society, even though politically we seem to be turning our backs on globalization, the, the, the COVID crisis see, shows us that we're all in it together. And you can't turn your backs on your fellow human beings of different cultures, races, nationalities. And the airline world is, is the glue that binds us together in, in many, many ways. Um, I think the governments will bail out the, the airline, but if you think about who, it's going to be the flag carriers and the major airlines that governments kind of support and, and back. And then you have a second tier of private airlines, the low cost carriers. Some are doing fantastic and have cash and probably will last, but many don't. And many won't have the kind of demand that can keep them going. And, and, and they will either restructure and, and the lenders will give them a a runway to carry on for a while to see whether or not it comes back or they they dissipate and and then uh you you have a uh, smaller demand for a global fleet and i think mm-hmm. whoever is left standing at the end of all this the the one of the questions becomes what does the global fleet look like if we've got 27,000 aircraft flying today um how many will we need 12 months 18 months 24 months from now and given that you know, everyone would guess that we will have something like 20 to 25% more aircraft. It could be more, it could be less, depending on how long this goes on. Well, what are the aircraft that are going to be required? Um, mm-hmm. Is the max ever going to make it back? Do you, do you um, go and lease a three, four-year-old, a 320 that, that has a market value that used to be around, you know, 40-ish million? Or do you just do with a $15 million 15-year-old aircraft, right? And gas is at 24 well, is it $24? So do you need the, the, the new technology? And I think in the old and the wide bodies and the narrow bodies, the answers are going to be different. Eventually, the old stuff will get um, parted out and it will leave our fleets. But yeah. in the very short term, you could see that economic incentives are not to go with any equi- new equipment. So OEMs, I think, are going to have a terrible time over the next two years. Who's going to take a brand new aircraft and why right. would you want it? Right? The supply chain to, to, to feed the OEMs, all the parts manufacturers that no one thinks about when you think about government bailouts, the ground handlers, the airline caterers who I used to work for. When no one's flying, no one needs gate gourmet. Right. Right? No one needs you know, um, a, a ground handler. No one needs a check-in agent. So it's a very, very holistic issue that we have. And yes, we'll, we'll, we'll save the big airlines. But what do we do with, with the secondary and tertiary suppliers in that right. same chain? And how do we treat those? People to make sure that they, they have as much of a shot at one, making a, a reasonable living whilst this is going on and two, that they're resilient and can come back and the integrity and safety of our supply chain in the airline world continues.
0: Yeah, no, it's going to be a, look, it's going to be a, it's, it's like, a, it's just a log jam. It's going, to, it's going to be crowded at first and it's going to take some time to sort itself out. You know, it's a pure FP&A thing. Um, yeah. A lot of the older yeah. airplanes that get parked will never see the light of day again. Yes. A, lot of your midlife, a lot of your midlife airplanes that have value will come out until they are, you know, valueless, and then eventually it will go back to Boeing and Airbus. Yeah. I was trading an email with, the, uh, with an editor at the Wall Street Journal today, and, you know, I just said, hey, my pure speculative, you know, throw a dart in the, at the board opinion is the, the winners in this whole thing may be the A220 and the E2, the, the jet. You know, very, yes. you know, 150, yeah, 150, 130, 150 seat airplanes, very
1: efficient,
0: you know, yeah. who knows what happens in the short term, but that may be the winner. So.
1: And, and you know what's interesting, Craig, before the COVID crisis hit us, there was a tremendous amount of momentum in the call for environmental awareness in mm-hmm. the airline world, right? And I, and, I, and, I, and I suspect that the noise and the chatter has stopped. No one's talking about what's your carbon footprint anymore to airlines. And, and it probably won't come back until we normalize, right? But I I, I hope that the airline industry, once we get past this issue, takes and embraces our responsibility to make sure that we are as fuel efficient and as clean as operators as we humanly can be. I don't think it's worth shutting down airlines because they burn a lot of carbon, but I do think it's worth making sure that we are as as responsible as possible. And the aircraft that you just mentioned are going to be at the forefront of that, right? Mm -hmm. And even the ATRs and the and, and, and the regional jets are, are more efficient in terms of fuel. Um, so I think the industry will have to really holistically think about how are we gonna go from where we are today through biofuels, through hybrid, and through eventual electrification, probably 15, 20 years away, but how do we invest in that so that the airline industry is always a model of how industry should, should, should behave towards society rather than the bad boy. Yep. So let's
0: switch channels a little bit here. So waypoint leasing was uh yes. would you have 150 helicopters
1: in uh, your portfolio? 166
0: 166 helicopters yes. in your yes. fleet mostly servicing the oil and gas industry and Yes. With oil now at at 23 well no actually it fell again today so oh i think goodness. it's below 20 bucks. Yeah. So uh the the O&G helicopter operators were not in a good position a couple of years ago. I'm sure they're in a horrible position today but you helped unwind Waypoint for its investors. CHC Helicopter had gone through a couple of uh, iterations of itself, and you helped yes. uh, you helped take that yep. through Chapter Eleven. Yeah. Yep. ILFC, you've managed through uh, AIG and ILFC through the uh, the you know post uh, financial crisis era.
1: Yeah. You've
0: and, uh, and you've, date
1: right after nine eleven when the airlines decided to cut costs, and the first thing you cut is the caterer. Because yeah, you can't cut your fuel or your landing <laughs> fees or your lease payments, and and the unions are tough to take on. So you go beat up the poor caterer.
0: So um, you uh, you like the easy jobs, I guess. What I'm saying, I you like uh, you, jobs, you uh, yeah. you're like,
1: uh, hey, just give me the easy stuff, and we'll leave the hard <laughs> stuff to somebody else. Huh? Oh, that building's burning! I'll run in. Um, you know. It, 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 it's, it comes from a desire to, again, be impactful and to be of service. I, I, I think the wonderful thing about a turnaround is that you can, you definitely leave a place better than you found it. And you make that impact in a very short space of time, because usually these things have mm-hmm. a very limited cash um, lifeline anyway. So you, you don't have much time. Right. Um, so you have to make a ton of decisions in a very short space of time. But you know what? The wonderful thing it also is that, I'll talk about Waypoint it was a team and a business that had just taken the wrong bet. Everyone thought oil was going to go to, you know, 200 or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. So there was a speculative long on oil and fat, oil and gas facing aircraft. And then it did, it didn't pan out, right? Mm-hmm. So you have a team of wonderful people who are really good at what they do and you have an industry that's exhausted a team that no longer has the right business plan and the right set of assets. And it's hard to pivot in the aviation world. Your assets aren't as liquid as selling a pair of shoes. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you come in as a leader and you help that team emerge from the crisis with a new vision, a vision that's ambitious, a vision that's inspiring, and you inspire the team to build that vision together, and you do so with the uses of culture, a culture of belonging, a culture of safety, a culture of rigorous analytics and, and, and over-communication, um, suddenly you see everything pivoting and suddenly you see everything going from, oh my goodness, we're falling off the side of a cliff to actually we are the best helicopter le- leasing team in the industry right. as, we, as we see it we see that we have a chance to pivot away from oil and gas to a much broader set of asset classes. And, and when I joined, we were 93%, I think, oil and gas. And when we sold the business to Macquarie, I think we were 64% oil and gas facing. So diversified away to utility helicopters, or um, uh, 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 search and, and rescue and medivac helicopters and, and electric lines and firefighting. And, and, and you see, well, actually, at our core, we're helicopter experts, and we're, we're a financing company. An industry with 72,000 birds flying around is going to need smart people to help it finance itself. So, so you're not an oil and gas facing helicopter falling down the side of the cliff. You are a bunch of Green Berets that are going to go figure out how to use your balance sheet and your skill set and your talent and your dedication to your customers and your relationships with MROs and your relationships with the uh, OEMs to get the best for your clients and obviously your shareholders. So it was wonderful to see the attitude change of the whole organization from uh-oh to look at us. We yeah. we're just, you know, we're killing it.
0: So so obviously when you take these, you know, you know, waypoint ILSC, when you when you take these you know, Gate Gourmet, when you take these roles, you know, you, you're a distressed company. On the other side, there's somebody who's just hoping they get paid. Yeah. And imagine the conversations get pretty, pretty tough. And it's like, hey, look, you know, we're going to pay you something. You're going to take a haircut. The biggest, you know, we, you know where we meet in the middle is, yeah, you know, somewhere. And it's going you know, to, you know, you're going to have to give, I'm going to give, you're going to give. How do you handle those, you know, difficult conversations? With you, you, the people who are pounding, pounding on you for their money?
1: You know, it's a really good question. It's very difficult to answer in some ways and actually pretty easy in others. You, 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 you go and analyze your priorities, right? Who are the suppliers that if they cut you off today, you stop working? And who are the ones that you, 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 you can walk away from? You, you figure out your negotiating strength in each position. Um, you figure out your talent retention strategy and who you must have. Um, you figure out you know, which customers you can't walk away from and which customers are frankly not gonna pay you because they're gonna go into trouble. So, mm-hmm. so you, you, and you look at what does the market need from you? What is it that you sell and provide that's relevant? And what is it that you sell and provide that three weeks ago everybody wanted, but today it's not gonna sell? Mm-hmm. Um, and once you review your own holistic position, my view on it would be to engage with every stakeholder with as much transparency as possible, and say to them, you know, we're okay, or we're not okay, but here's our plan to be okay, and here's how you fit in. Mm-hmm. And if you'd like to stand by us and support us, when we come out the other side of this, my goodness is our relationship going to be great, and you're going to be the number one, whatever it is, MRO, lender, OEM, and, and we will make sure that, that, that we come through this together. And, and sometimes that's a message that goes, uh, lands on, on favorable years. And sometimes it's a message that, that lands on nowhere, and people are like, well, that's very nice, but you better pay me. Otherwise, I'm shutting you down. Right. right. So, knowing whether or not you can survive and how you would without them is, is right. But I always find that in life, if you're a proactive communicator and if you're as transparent as you can be, most of your results are going to be a little bit better than you know if you just uh stick your head under under the sand and 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 you just hope for the best right well
0: it's like anything it's like you know hey you know good communication kills a lot of animosity absolutely
1: absolutely because you're absolutely right. it's trust right everything in business comes down to trust right and if you talk and if you say do what you're saying gonna do and if you're transparent and you and you show as much information as you possibly can um People trust you, and they'll, they'll give you a lot more leeway than if you just leave it to the press to tell your story for you right. and make people assume that because you are X, you're dead, and the reason you're quiet is because you don't have anything to say, so you're probably not going to pay, and then people just shut you off.
0: Right. And, they get and it's the same
1: with employees. Like If you're in a, in a global company at, um, in, in, in times of crisis, we had 27,000 staff at Gate Gourmet, Post-restructuring, we had 30,000 before, right? So there's 3,000 people that there was no more room for. And I think the only way to do it is to to be as transparent as possible and to inform people as much as you can. And also, I'm a huge believer in being as generous to everyone as you humanly can be on their way out. Because Mm -hmm. in a restructuring, it's not people's fault that they don't have a role anymore. It's the fault of some macro thing or some decision made strategically that has nothing to do with the people on the front line. Yeah. So that, that generosity is, is also something that I think is morally ethically and just from a business perspective, the right thing to do.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I look at, you know, this whole COVID thing and, you know, in general, I think the airlines have been pretty well run. I mean, yeah, you know, some better than others, you know, Southwest yep. has been a you know, good balance sheet and well-run airline for a long time. American was you know, challenged a little bit, you know, spirit was doing great, you know, It's customer service. You know, they were like, hey, look, we are what we are. But in general, from a balance sheet perspective, the airlines were all pretty well run and the airline comes in and shuts them down. And, you know, all of a sudden now you got thousands upon thousands of employees who are thinking about tomorrow. It's like, hey, look, we'll be as candid. I like Gary Kelly coming out with his, you know, Ned Bastian coming out with their their videos and saying, hey, look, here's kind of, here's the challenge. I think good communication goes a long way. You know, I think in a lot of the email generation, I'll say, you know, something's going wrong. I'll send an email or a text. Yeah. I'm like, hey, yeah. your, your phone's got little buttons on it for a reason. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I agree. I agree. As a society, I think we are, um, we, are we, we text and email too much, especially with difficult conversations. Yeah. And, and if you run towards the conflict rather than run away from it and hope a text covers your backside, I think you are a much, much more credible leader and you will win a much more, much higher level of goodwill from your stakeholders, including your employees.
0: So when you're turning a company around or working on a turnaround, what are you expecting from your employees? You know, you're, you're communicating with them. What are you expecting from them in return?
1: I expect candor because usually when you go in, you don't know even a quarter of what the people who've been there for three, four, five years know, right? It's interesting. When I was at Waypoint, I, I I would say to people, if you had a blank slate and you could rebuild this business from scratch, what would you do? And they'd be like, well, we would we would go after this market, we would do this aircraft type, and we would. And I was like, well, what, why didn't someone say that to me on day one, right? And it's interesting because when you are a leader, it's 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 you have to work hard to make sure that people feel safe and, and protected to speak what they feel is the truth. And it might be a radical different situation to what everyone is sort of pretending is the, is the reality of the business. Mm-hmm. Not, not, and and this, this isn't just Waypoint. Um, so I expect transparency and I would expect hard work. Any leader doesn't like any surprise. So, again, it, it, it's, it's that openness. Um, I expect my team to be reliable. I expect my team to be um, educated and measured so they're measuring the right things and they've thought through everything. Um, I hope that the people that I surround myself with, everyone says if you're a leader, always surround yourself with great people. And, and, and you know, there's a, you think about, well, what does that mean? And, and for me, I'd, I'd like people to be coachable. I'd like people to be honest, humble, willing to learn, willing to work hard, being self-aware and full of integrity and grit, right? And, and I think if I expect all of this from my team, they should be able to expect it from me. So I hope to lead by example. And if you have a team with that dynamic, I think you'll be fine, no matter what the world throws at you, be it COVID or you know, God forbid a a terrorist attack or whatever, you're going to be okay.
0: What are you telling them? You know, so you're, yeah. What are you telling them? Your company's in a mess, company's a mess and everybody knows it, but you know, look, to turn it, you got to go recruit. You got to go get some you know, serious, you you know, either some new skill sets. you know, look, you know, the banks, the leasing companies, everybody's going to need workout people, you know, coming up in about six months. I mean, I was laughing the other day, the busiest people in three months are going to be the, uh, the OBGYNs, um, <laughs> you know, where there's, yeah, where, yeah. Or divorce lawyers. Or divorce lawyers or criminal attorneys <laughs> because the murder rate's going to be high. I don't know. You know, it's like I was telling somebody, the, uh, the scarf my wife is knitting me looks an awful lot like a noose. I don't know. <laughs> Here's the
1: cashmere news, Craig.
0: But, uh, you know, you, you got to go get talent. You got to get you know, different skill sets. And, and, and when you're out recruiting them, how are you, you telling them your vision? You know, it's, uh, hey, this, this company's a mess. Everybody knows it's a mess. The industry is in a lot of turmoil. How do you convince somebody, hey, look, pack up your family, come, uh, come join my you – know, this is great for you, for anybody building a team. How do you, how do you get them to you know, embrace your vision
1: for the future? You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I've always tried to be ultra candid in interviews. I won't sugarcoat it. I will try to almost scare people off to to make them understand that, you know, this is risky, this is difficult. This is going to make you work a lot harder. In return, you will be part of something meaningful. You will have seven years worth of experience in one. So like dog years, you'll learn a lot. And it could turbo boost your career. So yeah. if you're in for that, I will nurture you. I will support you. I will have your back. And I will do everything I can to make you shine like a bright star because that's how we're all going to win together. And if you, and if you don't want to do it, don't do it. It's totally fine. You know, nine out of ten people wouldn't want to do this. And, and people kind of self-select. Um, and it's easy to use that methodology now where it's very, very easy true and clear, um, even in good times, I would try to sort of, you know, make people understand that there's a lot expected of you here. And if you want to be part of that, come on in. And if you don't, it's totally fine.
0: Yeah, I, got, I, I hear you. And that's, you know, a lot of people, it's interesting. They tell me, hey, look, I want to, I want to be at the place where I can really make a difference. And, you know, the, but then they're afraid to sort of leave their, their safety net and you know when i think about yeah i think about yeah hey look there's some great companies out there there's some great big companies yeah united technologies collins aerospace honeywell etc
1: yeah
0: yeah you hear a lot of people going well i run a 400 million dollar p l now why would i want to go to a 50 or 60 million dollar company well because you told me that you wanted to make a difference yeah and the, the yeah. fifty or sixty million dollar companies, hey, they need A players too. I mean, you know, more so yeah. Yeah. than, you know, it's, yeah. It's it's like I tell the t- it's like the guy in the tugboat.
1: You know, it's
0: the guy in the tugboat yeah. needs a really good crew too.
1: Uh, absolutely. And look, if you've got a sixty million company, I would go in there with a, with a mindset of I'm going to turn this into a six hundred million dollar company, Craig. So it's an opportunity.
0: It's an opportunity. Exactly. I yeah. got gotcha. you. So, uh, you know, I look at the the banking structure now. I look at what the government's doing, putting a lot of money into industries in general. Yeah. I think aviation, aerospace bounces back. I think it's going to be a little while. I mean, look, realistically, yeah, I'm usually an optimist. I think realistically, airlines are going to probably not come back. I'm hoping Thanksgiving, Christmas maybe is the catalyst that gets them back to full boat and then into Q1. 2021 but it's probably going to take that long it's going to take that long to get there
1: we'll have a tremendous amount of disruption i think you're absolutely right the demand isn't as elastic as a v-shape um we don't know when this virus is going to go away and whether it resurges once we ease off on our um, social restrictions um i think i think having had 14 good years in the aviation industry and a tremendous amount of capacity expansion there's going to be a um years and years of rebuilding because I think airlines will go away, the weaker ones. I think the leasing companies that are facing those airlines will go away Mm -hmm. and we'll have a glut of aircraft. And then the strong leasing companies, on the one hand, they'll have wonderful opportunities to buy good assets at prices which will look like a screaming bargain compared to where they were three weeks ago. On the other hand, they're the ones who are holding gigantic (laughs) fleets, which they have you know borrowed on at pre at previous values, right, so even the good ones I think will need turnaround and restructuring folks because they 'll have to go to their banks and say here 's how much our balance sheet is worth and and here's how much our debts are here's the new lease rates mm-hmm. for these aircraft because of the overcapacity'll bring lease rates down um, yep. You're a leasing company, having been one myself twice in my life, and there's no demand for your asset. The only tool you have is to reduce your price, but but you still bought that asset at a certain number, yeah. and you still have debt debt and interest payments at a certain number. So you're going to have to figure out well, how do you square the new lower pricing with the new uh, with your old structure? So everyone's going to have to go through a change. Yeah. The airlines are going to have to go through a change because their capacities will have to shrink. The MROs, there's going to be less of them. The end of life part out and storage guys, I think, can go start to think how they expand and grow, they, they'll probably benefit from all mm-hmm. this. Um, the ground handlers, the caterers will have really, really difficult times, and they'll have to keep their operations intact and be able to accordion their way back up as the airlines flow. So you, you're absolutely right. This is a multi-year rebuilding of an industry. Uh, hopefully we come back stronger and, as, as we said earlier, more socially aware of the importance of this business and i wonder whether the regulators will force us to do that
0: well you know hey look the that could be the max you know the max thing uh, yes you know and 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 look the last max issue the wire bundles under the cockpit you yeah. know, my 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 personal you know opinion unfounded opinion just an educated guess is that was the faa proving one more time right to the world that we're boss we'll look at everything and the airplane will not fly until they say it's ready to fly
1: right right um right.
0: you know that's you know that's you know that's it but you know on the flip side there was a lot of new money coming into the industry uh it came in late it was you know a lot of people probably had no business investing in engines and airplanes and whatever else came in and they were paying top dollar yeah for everything yeah they'll get flushed out yeah, you know, it's the strong will get stronger. It's 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 less of what the what this thing is doing doing to us in a lot of ways, but what it's doing for us. Yeah, and it could bring back a lot of players even stronger than they you know, than they are now.
1: I think guess. that's right. And 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 look, unfortunately, off the back of this difficulty, there'll be some incredible buying opportunities.
0: I think so as well. Um, yeah, you know, like I, yeah, Boeing's going to be here in ten years um airbus will be here in 10 years yeah ge engines and rolls royce and pratt and whitney will be around in 10 years yes um it's great technology so hey i appreciate you coming on stay safe down in texas and uh let's get you You back on in a few weeks after this thing clears out and we'll talk about what the uh what the aftermath looks like
1: i appreciate it thank you so much
0: awesome i hope you enjoyed the latest edition of the aerospace executive podcast You can reach out to me directly, Craig, at NorthStarESG.com or check us out at www.NorthStarESG.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or on YouTube. Just do a search for Aerospace Executive Podcast. Thanks again. I'm Craig Pickett.